Hello, and welcome to another podcast from Rheumatology Consultant. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashal. Today we'll hear from Dr. Vikas Majithia, Director of the Division of Rheumatology for the University of Mississippi Medical Center and the School of Medicine. He's going to speak to us about lupus nephritis, including how this complication of systemic lupus erythematosus is classified and what these classifications can do in helping rheumatologists determine how best to treat their patients with this disease. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Majithia. To start us off, would you discuss the classifications of lupus nephritis that begin, of course, with class one and go through to five and even six? Is lupus nephritis a progressive disease, or may a patient develop lupus nephritis at a particular class without proceeding with class one and two and on up through five or six? That's a wonderful question and would need a fair amount of elaboration. When patients with lupus develop kidney involvement, uh, we typically call that as lupus nephritis. But I want to be mindful, not everybody who has kidney involvement in lupus will have actually nephritis or inflammation. Uh, some patients have uh, less inflammatory or non-inflammatory problems. A lot of these patients, if they're having evidence of kidney involvement, when they come to see us clinically in the form of elevated kidney test, creatinine, or proteinuria, uh, and there are some other features which can go as in association, and we suspect they have a kidney active kidney disease due to lupus. We end up getting a kidney biopsy on them, and and we see one of these six classes, uh, which is we have tried to uh, classify them to help us prognosticate and make therapeutic decisions. Amongst them, class one and two are fairly benign which is minimal change disease or mesangial. And then class three and four is when we see proliferation and uh, class three is focal proliferative and class four is diffuse proliferative. All it means is there is a lot more inflammatory problem in these patients. And then class five is membranous, which does not have a lot of inflammation yet tends to have what you call as expansion of basement membrane or, or, mes or cell, uh, mesangium to the point the kidneys become very leaky and leak a lot of protein. And then class six is the end result of uh, many of these uh, classes if they continue to progress. Uh, and uh, that is what we call as patients who have chronic disease, not so much active disease, and it is more sclerosis or scarring. There are two things I do want to point out in this is uh, there is very small uh, features which can differentiate from one class from the other, especially when it is three to four. It is on the basis of that biopsy specimen and what we are seeing under microscope that either it is clear cut, but in, in a lot of cases, it is not as clear cut and depending upon how significant involvement it is. If it is more than 50%, we'll call it class four. If it's less than 50%, it's called as class three. So there are a lot of pathologic ways of classifying these disorders. And the second thing which we look for in these patients is uh, whether they have active disease, there are signs of activity and 
chronic disease. So we look for signs of activity and chronicity, and those are called as activity index and chronicity index. And that's all together gives us a better information than just the classes. And the last thing you asked was uh, whether they are progressive. Uh, in some ways, class one to four may be progressive, but I, I and then then class five kind of jumps in. But typically, um, it, you can have uh, one or the other classes. I don't think this is progressive uh, in most cases, and in some patients, not infrequently, we see more than one class being reported. That's interesting. What is the most common class? that you see? Most significant class that, that we need to worry about is the active inflammatory class, uh, which would be class three and four. So I'll just combine them. Uh, and then uh, the other one, which tends to lead to aggressive kidney disease and ultimately uh, chronic kidney problems in lupus patients is class five. Uh, in my experience, and again, we have a relatively unique population, uh, we still see majority of active disease being either class three or four, and then some of the patients have class five. Uh, in traditional literature, it has been reported that class five is, or in isolation, is only been only seen in about fifteen percent or so uh, kidney biopsies. But in our experience, the number is a little higher, and I, uh, it is closer to thirty percent. But class five commonly is is also reported in patients who have both three and four uh, on on the pathology. And, and occasionally it's also reported with uh, class two. So there are, there are lower percentages of patients who have class one and two. Majority of the patients will fall into three and four. Uh, and then uh, and the patients will have some membranous or pure membranous or isolated membranous disease. If in some patients we do see, you know, advanced sclerosis diseases, I would say between five to 10% of the biopsies where we suspect some activity are actually more because of chronic kidney disease. Yeah, those, are, those have class six. In one study, the indication was that only two thirds of a group of patients had had a kidney biopsy within a year of being diagnosed with lupus nephritis. Why would so many patients may not have that biopsy? It, it is multifactorial. Um, it's both uh, on the patient factors and physician factors. Uh, uh, 100 of percent of the patients who have lupus nephritis or suspected lupus nephritis should undergo at least one kidney biopsy. And it should be done relatively soon after the, the suspicion is there or a diagnosis of lupus nephritis is, is confirmed. Um, but because of various reasons, again, patient-related factors, where it is preference or lack of understanding or other socioeconomic drivers, uh, it may not happen. And occasionally, um, you know, there are, there are physicians who are not as aggressive in getting a biopsy on these patients, and, and uh, th that could be the uh, other factor. But most majority of the reason is um, because of patient and socioeconomic factors. Patients may just be reluctant to undergo the, the procedure. That's one thing, but also lack of access, lack of uh, availability of them making it to uh, an appropriate place to get uh, the biopsy or lack of biopsy, uh, you know, uh, 
facility at at the fingertips for the physician is also are also big factors and then of course social and cult- other cultural issues because of their lack of understanding uh, to uh, kind of refuse it is is not uncommon there was a discussion about the urine testing and so urinalysis is not enough that you need a quantitative test for protein That's again, very good question. I really do recommend that every lupus patient uh, get a quantitative urine test uh, periodically. And uh, the frequency can vary, but it is very important to look for proteinuria. Urinalysis is not dead uh, to provide us information. There are some additional information which can come from urinalysis, but uh, it, it can be a really good screening test. But If, if there is suspicion, I uh, would definitely have to quantify at the level of proteinuria. And anything more than uh, 0.5 gram or 500 milligram on that specimen with a random urine and protein creatinine ratio is abnormal and should raise the suspicion that this patient might have lupus nephritis and should be followed and considered for further evaluation. In a number of these patients, further additional testing by doing a 24-hour urine collection should also be considered at least once and at the initiation of the diagnosis so that we can confirm that that what we are seeing on a random uh, single uh, specimen is actually there when we, when we evaluate them for collecting their urine for 24 hours. Uh, and that might be repeated if needed. So in addition to a kidney biopsy and this quantitative urine test, What other sorts of diagnostic or screening procedures do you go through with your patients when you suspect that they may be developing lupus nephritis? Um, there are other blood tests, you know, which are done routinely for lupus patients, uh, which are very helpful uh, in, in also suggesting that the patients might have uh, kidney disease. And, you know, the foremost of them is uh, complement levels. Patients with lupus kidney disease, lupus nephritis, tend to develop hypocomplementemia, especially if they have class three and class four uh, disease. Now, not always, but they tend to have that. And, you know, routine testing. So lupus kidney disease or lupus nephritis does not always occur in isolation. A lot of these patients have other system involvement. So it's very important to recognize that a patient who has lupus nephritis may also have, you know, I would say, you know, blood in, in issue with the lupus, uh, lupus thrombocytopenia, hemolytic anemia, or, or uh, red cell consumption, or in lung involvement or, or brain involvement. So we have to, to uh, kind of understand that uh, we have to look at it as a whole, both with a clinical picture and then some, some laboratory studies. And the most helpful for them, again, at this time is uh, are the complements. Uh, I would also add there is a lot more interest in actually looking for biomarkers. And there is evidence of some urinary biomarkers and those are complement degradation products, you know, complement uh, C5A in particular to in the urinary level to kind of help us prognosticate and diagnose uh, these patients. And those are, you know, there are continued studies and, and, and research which kind of sheds more light about this. Do those biomarkers give you any indications as treatment goes on as to whether the patient is improving? Is it mainly a diagnostic tool? Uh, I think it's both diagnostic and prognostic tool. And you can check those levels. And again, um, we, we, they, are, they have yet to be completely understood and validated, but they, they do hold 
promise in, in uh, both uh, helping us diagnose these patients at an earlier stage and, and confirming it and helping, it follow, helping us follow their disease. You mentioned other system involvement with lupus and lupus nephritis. What about risks of other types of, of autoimmune or other illnesses that come with these diseases, such as B-cell lymphoma? That is an inherent risk for all lupus patients who have active disease. So um, whether lupus nephritis increases it um, above and beyond that increased risk in these lupus patients, uh, it is, uh, it's not clear and, and not well known. Uh, lupus is an autoimmune disease and there is continued uh, overactive cells, particularly B cells. And that's why these patients have a lot of autoantibodies and, uh, and a heightened risk of uh, B cell lymphoproliferative dis disorder has been or have been prescribed in, in lupus patients, including lupus nephritis patients. Now, of course, lupus is much more common among women than men. Is it true that men are at higher risk of having a more aggressive form of lupus nephritis if in fact they develop it? That is very correct. There are both gender and ethnic uh, variations and, uh, and men in particular, uh, if, if they do have lupus, have a higher risk of uh, developing lupus nephritis. And similarly, uh, minorities, especially African-Americans, Hispanics have a higher risk and they tend to have more severe lupus nephritis and Asians tend to have the, the next one, uh, next higher risk. And then uh, Caucasians have, again, you know, it's, the risk is not zero, but amongst all the ethnicities, they have the lower risk uh, of lupus nephritis. You mentioned earlier that your patient population is unique. Can you tell us what sets it apart and what are you learning from that? I, I work in Mississippi. Uh, we have a primarily uh, African-American population and most of the lupus patients that uh, I see and my colleagues see in our clinic are African-Americans. Uh, so we end up having about 90 to 95% African-Americans uh, in, in the clinic. Are there differences in how lupus and lupus nephritis affect patients based on either racial or ethnic factors that you have noticed? That, that is uh, correct. And uh, it is, uh, and again, African-Americans tend to have kidney disease more often than other uh, ethnicities, and they tend to have more severe kidney disease. Uh, similarly, Hispanics have that increased risk, just not as much as African-Americans. Likely to be a genetic factor, but again, we have to remember there are other socioeconomic factors that we that contribute to this, uh, these aspects that I, I, I'm, we are not completely sure of. Anything else that you would like to pass on to your fellow rheumatologists about diagnosing patients with lupus nephritis, the steps they need to take, uh, what you would advise based on your experience? I think you know, every lupus patient should be monitored for kidney involvement. Uh, the kidney involvement, uh, lupus nephritis tends to occur earlier uh, and tends to, of course, follow the ethnic um, uh, pattern that we discussed earlier. Um, but every patient should undergo uh, evaluation uh, and monitoring to make sure they are not developing lupus nephritis. And if it is suspected or expected in those patients, a kidney biopsy can be very, very helpful in help, you know, prognosticating uh, these patients and helping us make better therapeutic decisions. Uh, furthermore, uh, there are newer treatments which actually have just gotten approved 
for lupus nephritis. Uh, we, we already have uh, seen a lot of progress in, in improvement of outcomes in lupus nephritis patients because of standardization of protocols and, and trying to use less toxic medications like mycophenolate instead of cyclophosphamide. And now with uh, an additional be benefit of multi-target therapy, both with belumimab and uh, voclosporin in class three and class four patients, I, I think uh, we, we can make their lives a whole lot better. We can prevent the progression of kidney disease, but early diagnosis and, and early initiation of treatment is the key. And so working uh, them up early and monitoring them on a, on a periodic and regular basis and then getting a kidney biopsy is very, very important for us. Well, thank you very much for your time today. This has been very interesting and we look forward to speaking with you again. Absolutely.